Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 614 with Annie Duke. Our poker champion is back with more decision-making wisdom. You'll learn one, why your decisions still matter even when you don't call the shots. Two, the shift in language that leads to more open conversations. And three, how a pros and cons list can trick us into actually making worse decisions. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you can check out awesomeatyourjob.com slash F614. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP and then the numbers 614 to see those goodies. And if you want some other goodies, such as summaries of Annie's wisdom and access to the vault of all of these summaries. We call those the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can read them in about three minutes or less and get a whole lot of wisdom, a whole lot of fast. Gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Annie's story. Annie Duke is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. Annie's latest book, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, is available October 15th, right about now, if you will, from Portfolio, a Penguin Random House imprint. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. And prior to becoming a professional player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She's also a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. In 2020, she joined the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Big thanks to Annie for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Annie. Annie, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm excited to be back. It's been a while. It has. Well, yeah, we were just looking at that. It's it's been over two years. And uh, wow, time is flying. Because I still remember many of the things you said kind of closely. Like, want to make a bet? (laughs) Nice. So it seemed closer. So yeah, I'm excited to dig into some wisdom you've you've formulated in your, your latest book, How to Decide. But first, I think we need to hear... We know about you being a poker champion, but I just recently learned that you're also a rock, paper, scissors champion, and I want to hear the whole story. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There's like literally so little story to this. (laughs) It sounds much more amazing and glamorous than it actually is. 
at the World Series of Poker one year, some friends of mine, like they organized a Rock, Paper, Scissors World Championship, which was, it was designed like March Madness. And I quickly went over and asked my friend for some Rock, Paper, Scissors advice, which he gave me. And I ended up winning. So. Well, that's good advice. So what? what's the trick? <laughs> well, first of all, a lot of luck. Well, the trick that he mm-hmm. told me, and listen, I'm not certifying this advice. It happened to have worked for me, uh, is that you should be thinking about how you can tie with the person. So it's a little bit, you know, like it's like anything else that you're playing that's like that. You want to try to get into the other person's head and think about what they might be throwing. So if they're throwing scissors, you should be trying to throw scissors back. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so... And, and I think the reason for that, if they were thinking about you being able to predict them, which is where people's heads go. So if I'm thinking about throwing scissors, I'm worried about you throwing rocks. So if I change my mind, I'm going to go to paper, but scissors beats paper. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it is. It's like you're sort of going those levels deep that, that the person is thinking I'm throwing scissors, but what if they know? Yeah. And if they know, then I want to figure out something that's going to beat that. And so when you're shifting off of your original intention, you'll lose to the tie. Oh man, there, there's so many layers here. I've looked a little bit in the world of, of championship rock, paper, scissors play. And uh, I understand some people will just pre-memorize a script. Like I'm going to go rock this, scissors, then, you know, and then, and they just roll with it regardless of what you're doing. Yeah. So I've used that strategy before. So basically what you're saying there is I don't want to be predictable so you would do this if you thought that your opponent was actually quite good. In other words, so you, you felt like you couldn't predict your opponent, then you would want to go to essentially a random number generator. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what they're doing. They just write down a script in advance and they're just saying, if I'm not reacting to what they're doing or, or reacting, whatever, then, then you can't predict me. So the way that I did that, there was one, I don't know if it was in that tournament, it might've been another one. I took out a dollar bill. So there's multiple rock, paper, scissors tournaments under your belt. Two. (laughs) So what I did was I came against somebody who I thought was actually quite good at rock, paper, scissors. And so I took out a bill. I just had like a stack of bills, like dollar bills. And basically that would give me what a serial number is like 10 numbers or something that would give me 10 throws. Mm -hmm. So I had like, if it was zero, one or two, I would throw rock. If it was three, four, five, I would throw scissors. And if it was six, seven, eight, I would throw paper. And then I ignored nine and moved on. Right. So it was like that kind of thing. So that, that ends up accomplishing the exact same thing. Yeah. And so, so you're a champion in the one and, and how the other one go? I think I got to like the semifinals maybe. Well, so and that's what I find so intriguing is, is it suggests that if, if it's repeatable that you're doing well, then it seems like there's more than pure chance at work here. <laughs> I think it's probably just, you know, I mean, I've played a lot of poker, so I sort of crawl into people's heads a lot. And so I think that I'm probably maybe better than the average Joe of figuring out what your patterns are, what you're likely to be doing. And if mm-hmm. you can do that, obviously you can defend against it, but then you also have to have to have this kind of second order knowledge of when am I against somebody who might be better than me at that? And then you can go to a random strategy. And I think, yeah. I think what happened was did I lose? It was either lost in the semifinals or the finals, but it was starting in the semifinals that I, or the round before that, that I used the random strategy. And I know I won one or two rounds with the random strategy where I felt like I'd come across somebody who was really good. By the way, it really frustrates your opponent because they want to be able to apply their skill. And so if they're yeah. really good and then you take out a dollar bill, they realize that you've completely unarmed them. 
Yeah, well, that's intriguing. And, you know, I read that they made a, a robot that can win rock, paper, scissors every time, but it's cheating. It like, it catches what you're going to do like a split second. Oh, and then, well, that's and then, not really like, winning. It, it, is, yeah, it? It, it, it could cheat at rock, paper, scissors perfectly. Great. Yeah, a cheating robot. You know what we really need to add to this dystopia right now? <laughs> cheating robots. Cheating robots. We could just add cheating robots into the mix. <laughs> Oh, more headlines, more headlines yeah. to, to trigger anxiety. Okay, cool. Well, well, that was fun. Uh, let's talk about decision-making when there's well, no, more than did. pure. <laughs> we did. Yeah, how to win rock, paper, scissors yeah. under different circumstances. Well, so I, I, I love dorking out about decision-making tools and uh, I'd love it if, hey, if there's some listeners who, who are not yet as enthused <laughs> as you and I, can you make the case for, for the benefits professionals can enjoy with enhanced decision-making skills? And maybe specifically or particularly for those who, who think that, you know what, I don't have a whole lot of decision-making authority in my role. I kind of got to do what I'm told. What are the benefits to be had by being excellent at decision-making? Let me give you just sort of the broader point, which is that there's only two things that determine how your life turns out, and it's luck and the quality of your decision-making. That's it. So there's a whole bunch of luck that happens in your life. Like what year are you born in? It matters that, that I was not born in 1600 for the outcome of my life. And there's, you know, like obviously from my perspective or from your perspective, coronavirus is a matter of luck. I assume you did not create the virus and distribute it. True. But maybe that's a bad assumption. <laughs> right. Uh, certainly. Uh-huh. And, and I guess there's, there's decisions you make associated with, you know, how, how much you're going to go out, what measures you're taking. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's a good example of the two things that matter. There's a whole bunch of luck that has to do with coronavirus, like the wrong bat met the wrong human to steal that line from contagion. Mm-hmm. And then there are decisions that you can make given that that luck has occurred. And that's the only thing that you have control over. And the better that your decisions are, the better your life is going to turn out. So, I mean, that's literally the simplest argument, which is it's the one thing that you have control over that will actually have an, an actual real impact on the way that your life is going to turn out. Now, I understand that someone may in a, in a business setting not be the ultimate decider, but the better your decisions, the more likely that you're going to accomplish your goals within that environment. And there's a few ways that you can think about it. One is, of course, that you're responsible for your own decisions. And one would hope that the better your, your decisions are, the more it maps on to your ability to actually move up the ladder or, or accomplish the goals that you're trying to, to get to professionally. And you want to become more educated and you want to implement a better process just literally for yourself. That's number one. Number two, there's certain things, there's certain behaviors that you can engage in that actually will be, will start to get implemented in the people around you. In other words, you do have some influence, even if you're not the ultimate decider, you have some influence over the people around you that you can start to sort of get some of these really good decision making skills and tools like in, into a group setting. And the last thing is honestly, like, let's say that I'm in a crappy situation with a bad boss and they don't really listen to anybody. And I don't like the situation I'm in. That's actually in some ways a more important time to be a good decision maker, because you need to be able to navigate those situations. Well, you need to decide when you want to stay, when you want to go, do I want to quit? Do I not want to quit? What can I do about this? to make my situation better and actually to be able to thrive in an environment that's an unhappy environment. Because in a variety of ways, we can all end up in environments that are really unhappy, where there are external forces that are making it very hard for us to thrive. And while that is true, 
And we want to be able to work to be able to change the situation that we're in as much as we can. Sometimes we have very little control over that. So you want to sort of grab onto like, what are the things that I do actually have control over and improve those? Because those little changes will compound over time. Well, that's exciting. And so then, so it's about as important as it could get <laughs> in terms of what we can control that uh, will impact everything in, in, in life and career and happiness, uh, decision-making enhances. So could you maybe inspire us? Could you, could you share a story of someone who's, you know, they, they thought their decision-making was, you know, fine, but then they adopted some of your, your tools and approaches and they, boy, uh, they saw some uh, awesome results with their enhanced decision-making. If I were to think about this from prior to getting into a business setting from a poker setting, the fact is that in order for me to improve my poker playing, what I have to do is be able to, to think about what, what kind of were my predictions of the world and then try to figure out how did the actual outcomes that I got map onto my predictions of the world? What were the other ways that I might've thought about the hand? And then I need to be able to talk to people in a way that's going to expose to me the ways in which they may have differences of opinion with me because the differences of opinion are where things get really interesting, right? Like if you and I believe the earth is round, that's pretty un- interesting. Like, mm-hmm. okay, the earth is round. I also agree. <laughs> yeah. Conversation over. <laughs> but if I find out that you think it's flat and I think it's round, that's like a humongous opportunity. And your listeners may be saying like, well, how is that an opportunity for the person who believes that the earth is round, which is a very common response for that. Isn't that only an opportunity for the person who thinks the earth is flat? And a couple of answers to that. Number one is things usually aren't as clear as, as we know that the earth is round, not flat. We're usually talking about things that are much more subjective, like which candidate to hire. Mm-hmm. And you believe we should hire candidate B. And I think I should hire candidate A. And we don't know what the truth is, right? Not in the same way of round and flat. And so we need to have that discussion in order to, to, to get to the discovery that the earth is round. That's, that's the first piece. But the second piece is that even when we hold opinions that are generally may, maybe are even true, it's actually helpful for me to actually have to defend those against somebody who believes that the earth is flat, because I, I don't know about you, but I, my arguments for why the earth is round would be super weak. Mm-hmm. Like things like scientists say so. And I saw the pictures, yeah, I saw. <laughs> which are not, not particularly good arguments. So, so by having to actually be able to explain it to you, I'm actually going to know my own position better. So what I was trying to do as a poker player was actually find out where there are areas of disagreement. So when I actually work with teams, most of what I'm trying to do is that. And that's how we're improving decisions. Because what we're doing is we we have processes that are in place, which we can talk about, which allow for you to surface the dispersion of opinion, mm-hmm. as opposed to linger over the agreement. Now, I, you, I'm sure you've been in lots of meetings where basically what happens is somebody says something and then everybody goes around the room and says, I just want to double click on what Pete said. Because I have my own reasons for believing the thing that he said. And I also would like to reiterate the same reasons that he said those things. And you sort of go around the room and then I guess everybody feels pretty good about themselves. But what you've really done is said, I think the earth is round. I think the earth is round. I think the earth is round. I think the earth is round, which is not particularly good for informing a group. It's not good for informing a decision. It's not going to actually improve decision-making at all. So what I'm trying to do with groups is get them to surface the areas where they disagree where there's actual dispersion of opinion, and then spend most of their time on that, really mm-hmm. exploring that, by the way, not with the goal that they end up agreeing. Because when you're talking about subjective things like candidate A or candidate B, 
you actually shouldn't expect agreement. And if you do get to agreement, probably somebody's actually not agreeing, they're giving in, which is a really mm-hmm. different thing. But we want those different viewpoints to collide. And then that really improves the decision making. Now, it turns out that when you really do a good job of surfacing the dispersion in the first place, you also create this amazing record of why you think what you do, why you, you, ha- you want the decision that you want, what you think is going to be mm-hmm. true of the world in the future. And this then has a huge impact on your decision-making because after the world starts to unfold as it does, like after the future starts to happen and become the present, you like have an evidentiary record that you can go back and look at. And this now allows us to actually create really nice closed feedback loops where we actually know what we're supposed to be looking for in order to become better calibrated in our decisions. So what I can tell you is that the, the groups that I work with, when we actually get these these kinds of processes implemented, the quality of the conversation shoots through the roof. Meetings are shorter, but more informative, mm-hmm. which I think everybody would really like. And then the way that they're actually thinking about dispersion, like what is it, what does it mean for somebody to disagree with you moves out of sort of the defensive world into the open-minded world, because we, it really reinforces this idea is that the, the goal of a meeting is to inform, not to agree. Yeah. And then it actually helps them to much more quickly to recalibrate if, if their calibration is off because you can close these feedback loops really quickly and more and, and actually more accurately. Well, and I love that point you brought up about uh, defensiveness there. And even the phrase dispersion of opinion, it, you know, feels emotionally a lot more comfortable than disagreement or conflict. Well, that's that's why I'm using that term, actually. <laughs> Masterful. Good work. Yeah. So, so it's in my book, and I, I really recommend that people start to use this term, dispersion or divergence. Both, both of those words, I think, mm-hmm. are really good. Where do we diverge and where do we converge? Because I think disagreement has such a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds so combative. And when I feel like you disagree with me, uh, it gets translated for us sort of just cognitively into like you're attacking my identity mm-hmm. as opposed to just like, oh, you know, we have a disagreement about this thing. It feels like an attack on my identity. And generally what happens is that when I view it through the lens of disagreement, I'm going to tend to shift into uh convince mode as opposed to convey mode. In other words, yeah. I'm going to want to bring you over to my side of the argument in order to certify my beliefs and certify my identity. And so the way that I'm speaking to you is going to be meant to convince. It's going to create a lot of interrupting me saying, well, have you thought about this? Or you weren't thinking about this data? Or I think you're wrong about this or so on and so forth. As opposed to it, like a real honest exploration of me trying to understand why you believe what you do. Yeah. Well, it's funny. This reminds me of a, a time was way back, I think maybe at high school in which I was, I was arguing with somebody and we had some friends and we just decided that they were going to be the, the jury and we would make our case and advocate for our perspective. And, 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 you know, it was, it was kind of funny. It was kind of a joke, but, but it, it got a bit heated actually. And then when, when the other, the jury left, it was just the two of us. And we, we just sort of just sort of chatted out with a completely different intention of, well, let's sort of really see what kind of went on there and, and what we should do about it. And it was just sort of like night and day in terms mm-hmm. of, are we trying to convince to win the argument as opposed to kind of collaboratively, jointly discover what's as accurate as, as possible? Right. Yeah, exactly. And 
And I think that the other thing that we need to realize when we're dealing with things that are in the subjective world, so we're not talking about two plus two equals four, the earth is round. You know, for most of the decisions we're making in in our lives and in a business setting, by the way, we're talking about things where we're trying to discover what is objectively true, but what is objectively true is not known. So we're, we're, Mm -hmm. we're having to go through the discovery process in order to get there. And so the idea that you somehow know the truth and you need to convince other people of your side is really, really unproductive. And it's going to create that kind of thing that actually makes more sense that you, like the two of you convey why you believe what you do, and then you can walk away, not agreeing, and that that's okay because, because you don't need to. Like, I mean, if you think about, for example, like if, if, if you and I are in a hiring committee and I really care about whether I think the person is going to be a generous team member, right? Like cooperative, generous, someone who doesn't take credit for themselves, but likes to share credit and things like that. And all you care about is what their sales production is, Mm -hmm. right? Literally, you're just a numbers person, right? That's okay. I don't need to convince you of what my values are. And you don't need to convince me of what your values are because by allowing those two perspectives to just sort of live and breathe and for me to express why I believe what I do and why I think that's important. And you can express what you believe and why you think that's important. We're probably going to hire a better candidate because what's going to happen is that that's now going to get expressed in like our, our hiring rubric and who we actually end up bringing in. Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, so we've already covered some some great tools and perspectives associated with in-group settings, you know, how we can view it as a dispersion of opinion or divergence as opposed to a disagreement and how we're not trying to convince, but to convey. And and we're all enriched as a result of having engaged in that. I'd love to zoom in to sort of if it's an individual, you know, and and it's sort of, I've got, uh, you know, one person making decisions uh, for himself or herself and and doing the research and there's not so much a, a collaborative exercise going on what, what are some of the best tools in in this context to to make better individual decisions well first of all not a pros and cons list okay <laughs> which i think most people might find kind of surprising because i i know that so the thing about a really good decision tool like if we if we were to think about what's a great tool decision tool or otherwise like if we think about a screwdriver mm-hmm. right it should be accomplishing the purpose that it's meant to accomplish. So like, if you want, I want to get a screw to actually go in the wall in a way that's going to be safe and actually mm-hmm. accomplish the job. Ergonomic, convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I want to be able to, I want to use a screwdriver as opposed to a hammer or a jackhammer. So I want the right tool for the right purpose. But here's also the really important thing about a tool is that I need to be able to repeat the use in a way that's going to create really high fidelity. And then I also need to be able to hand it to somebody else and then explain it to them so that they could actually use that tool in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. So when we sort of understand that, we see where decision tools really go awry. So like your gut is not a decision tool. Well, why? Because I can't actually look at it and explain it to you, right? That's where we get, well, my gut told you so, right? And you're like, okay, but that doesn't really, I can't use your gut, ew, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. But, (laughs) But do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, but I can't actually examine to see whether you screwed that in well, and then you can't explain to me exactly how you got that screw in the wall or what you were doing. And I can't actually repeat that process because it's a black box. So uh, a pros and cons list in some sense, you know, certainly is a tool in the sense that we know its purpose is to get you to decide, which, you know, about whether you want to proceed with an option. 
and I could actually sort of teach you it in a structural sense. So, th so that's all, that's all okay. So we're getting part mm -hmm. of the way there. It's certainly better than gut, but here's, here's what that as a tool lacks that will actually reveal what the kinds of tools are that we actually want to be using. So the first thing that it lacks is that it's a list. I mean, that literally a list, which means that it's flat. So what do I mean by flat? It's flat in two ways. One is that when we think about something that's on the pro side or something on the con side, we don't have a sense of the magnitude. Yeah. So it could be like I could get a hangnail and I could die. Mm -hmm. So th those are both there. And, you know, so because all I, all I sort of have is this list. And so uh, that's kind of the first problem is that sort of the magnitude of how positive the things on the pro side are in terms of achieving your goals is not actually anywhere explicit in the list. And the magnitude of how negative the, the cons are is also not existing in the list. So that gives us hint number one is that we want to have an idea of this magnitude if we're going to have a really good decision tool. The second piece is that we also don't have a sense of the probability of those things occurring. Yeah. So if we have a con that's like, well, I could lose $10,000, you would want to know, well, but how likely is that to occur, right? So you could have a pro, which is like, I could win a million dollars or a, you could do this with the lottery, right? But the con could be, I, I'm going to lose a dollar or $2. And the pro is I could win the jackpot. So maybe that looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. But what we need to understand is what's the probability of winning the jackpot, which is de minimis, you know, versus what's the probability of me losing the $2, which is basically every time. So, and if we don't have that information, it's also incredibly hard to compare. So when we see that, what happens is it becomes very hard to understand whether an option is, is good or not. And then we get into the problem of how on earth would you compare options? Like if I had one option that had 10 cons and two pros, would that be worse than an option that had five cons and four pros. Well, I don't know because I don't know what the magnitude of those pros are or cons. And I don't know what the probability of those things occurring is. So it's hard for me to compare. And then we have this added issue, which is that it's basically literally a tool for expressing your cognitive bias, because you can imagine that you can take something that could sort of be one pro or one con, and you could divide it up into its little bits in order to create 10, you know, 10 mm. ways to express that. So the con could be like, well, you know, I might end up like really unhappy. So that would be one, mm -hmm. but it could also be like, I could be anxious. You know, I could be stressed. I could, I could be disappointed. Exactly. <laughs> right. And now all of a sudden it's 10 things, right? Uh -huh. So what ends up happening is that as we're sort of exploring those pros and cons, generally as we're entering into a decision, we already sort of somewhere in our head kind of know what our opinion is and know what we would like to be true. And then we do the pro and con list and all it's doing is kind of like expressing whatever that, that opinion already is, but it's certifying it as objective when it's not actually objective. And that's actually a super bad combination. And you can see how this is a problem, like particularly if we're trying to compare options because we're going to do it just by list. And so the option we don't want to do we can just create a lot of cons for the option that we do want to do. We want to create a lot of pros for. So that that's sort of through the, the negative frame of like, here's a tool that everybody really understands that turns out to be sort of the equivalent of taking a jackhammer to get a screw in the wall, which we okay. don't, obviously we don't want to do that. We're going to ruin, we're going to ruin the wall. So that tells us, okay, so what is a good decision process going to do? Well, 
it's going to solve this problem of sort of dimensionality. So for any option we're considering, we want to think about what the likely outcomes of that option are. But then we want to think about how much how much is that option going to advance us toward our goal or away? So that gets that idea of the payoff, right? What's the magnitude of how good or bad we consider that option is for, for us. But then we want to take a stab at what the likelihood of those things occurring is. And what that allows us to do is understand, for example, like in the startup world, you may have a really high likelihood of failure, but the payoff is so large that if that payoff is likely enough, you would still do it, despite the fact that mostly it's going to be bad outcomes. But that's okay Mm -hmm. because we've added this likelihood piece in and we've added sort of like, what is the payoff look? And we can start to bring that into our decision making. And then you can see that that now gives us a real way to compare our two options because now Mm -hmm. we have a pretty clear sense of what's the upside potential and the downside potential. And does the upside outweigh the downside given whatever I'm willing to risk, right? And then I can now compare those two things. So like a simple example would be like, let's say that I have two candidates that I'm thinking about hiring A and B, and I really, really care about retention, right? I'm like, my recruitment costs are like out of control and I've got all this employee turnover. So, so this is something that I happen to be focusing on. And so what I can do is I can say, I want to think about kind of these three buckets that the person that I'm hiring is going to be with the company between zero to six months, six months to 18 months, beyond 18 months. Let's say that we set those three things up. And then basically what I can do is just have anybody on the hiring committee for any candidate we see, just say, what do you think the probability of those of those three buckets is? Mm-hmm. Because that's what I really care about, right? And yeah. now I actually have an apples to apples comparison. So I've thought about what are my values? What are the thing, What are the payoffs that I'm trying to get? I want this person to stay here a long time. And I'm looking for the person who is going to stay here the longest, right? That's what I care about. And now I have a way to actually compare options. Okay, so we've covered some of the shortcomings of the the pro-con list. We got to capture very clearly the magnitude of things and the probability of those things occurring. And, And so then I'm imagining kind of just like a spreadsheet at this point in terms of I've got a few things, I've got some magnitude, I've got some probabilities. And, and I guess it gets a little tricky if it's not just money in, in terms of like, how do I put a number on my stress? How do you do that? Well, so, you know, I think that it's really interesting when we get into things that we feel are more subjective. We think that we actually don't know anything. And so therefore we shouldn't try Like, what's the probability I'm going to be stressed? Or it doesn't even have to be something that's like so clearly subjective, like stress, but like, what's the probability a candidate is going to be with a company, but you know, is going to leave within six months? Well, we don't know. We've, we've never hired that candidate before. So in the sense of, can I be exact, right? Like, or if I'm releasing a software feature and I want to know like of the people who use my product how many of them are going to start adopting this, like be daily users of this new feature within the first month. Obviously these aren't things that are like two plus two equals four. And they're not things like if I flip a coin, it's going to land heads 50% of the time where like, I know for sure uh, what the answer is because we have enough information. What people end up doing in that, that case is very often just saying, well, I'm not going to try because I can't come up with quote unquote, the right answer. And the problem with that is that then we just sort of get, we get, mired in the limitations of our, of our own, uh, sort of lack of knowledge instead of thinking about what I want to be an educated guesser. And that my goal as a decision maker is actually to get more educated because I have all this uncertainty in trying to forecast the future, which is really what we're doing when we're 
saying what are the possibilities and the probabilities mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, there's all this uncertainty in my ability to, to forecast the future, but the more educated I am, while I may never get perfect, I'm going to get closer to the range of what, of what is objectively true if I were omniscient. And that's actually going to improve my decision-making. So like, I, I mean, I can do, I can do an example of this with you. My computer is sitting on a stack of books. Now, obviously you can't see the books because it's what my computer is sitting on and we're on the computer looking at each other. And you don't, so you don't know how high the books are and you don't know what type and you don't know what number, right? Right. Okay. So uh, how much does a stack of books weigh? About five pounds. Okay. And what, what do you think like the lowest amount of the stack of books weighs is? Do you think it's possible this, this stack of books that it's sitting on could weigh a pound? I think it'd be improbable that a stack implying multiple books weighs less than one pound. Okay. Could it weigh 200 pounds? No. Okay. So, so I think this is really good, right? So what we discovered is that you could have said, I don't know, but what I just did was I said, well, but you're, you know, things about books. I sure do. While you may not get the exact answer, you're going to get an answer that eliminates a huge number of possibilities. In other words, it's going to get you somewhere closer to what's actually true of this stack of books that my that my computer is sitting on and that that's a really important exercise. And it's a really important exercise for three reasons that I hinted at. Reason number one is that the more accurately you're thinking about the future, in other words, can you get in the target range? Like you can think about it like an archer. And, and in fact, in the book, I talk about it like the archer's mindset, right? Yes, you'd like to hit the bullseye, but you get points for hitting the target. Mm-hmm. And the closer that you can get to, to hitting that bullseye, the better off you are but you're still getting points. It's like you still get points for showing your work, right? So even if you hit the outer edge of the target, you still get points because you all the stuff that isn't on the target, like you know that these books don't weigh 200 pounds, is gonna help you to actually have better decision quality because you're, you're eliminating all these different possibilities that the answer could be that's gonna clarify your decision and get you better at sort of calculating Really, in the end, what's the expected value of the decision? Like how much, how much upside potential compared to downside potential do I really think there is? So that's number one is that you're going to be creating a more accurate view of the future, even if it's not perfect. And that, that's good. Uh-huh. The second thing is that, which I had hinted at before, is that we, we have this problem as decision makers, which is that generally the stuff that we know is like so tiny it could fit on like the head of the, a pin compared to the stuff we don't know, which is like the size of the universe. You know, and obviously, if you had the ideal decision tool, which I think would be a crystal ball, you would be set because that universe of stuff that you didn't know would be revealed to you in this psychic instrument that you had that caused an omniscience and an ability to foresee the future, but we don't have a crystal ball. So what we're really trying to do is how can we how can we create a set of tools that will allow us to cobble together something that is crystal ball like? And part of that is dealing with this problem that there's this whole universe of stuff that I don't know. And by forcing yourself to guess, I made you think about that. I made you think, what do I know about books? Uh, So you're exploring that world of things that you do know in order to try to make yourself get the educated into the guess. And then you may, in other cases, start thinking, well, what, are, what is the universe of stuff that I don't know? And maybe that would actually help me with my guess. So like if we went back to something as simple as a hiring example, one of the things that we might do is say, well, maybe I could go find out how many candidates 
like when, when, when companies hire into this particular position, what the average retention in the industry is, that's called a base rate. Mm. And that would be incredibly helpful for me to go find out as I'm trying to estimate what I think any candidate that I might see is. Now that doesn't mean that the candidates I see are going to be right dead on the base rate, but it's going to give me a place to anchor to about like kind of what's true of the world in general. That's really going to help me. The other thing that it might do is to go ask for somebody else's perspective where we know that two people can be looking at the exact same data and come to very different conclusions about it. Right? So I could ask one person, what do you think these books weigh? And then I could ask somebody else, what do you think these books weigh? And maybe you said five pounds, maybe they say 20 pounds. Great. Now we go back to that earth is round and flat thing. And now I get Pete and the, you know, Pete, who's the five pound person and Susan, who's the 20 pound person to have a discussion about why they have that dispersion of opinion. That's probably going to get me closer to what the most educated answer would be closer to what's objectively true of the world. And that's actually like incredibly important. So whether you're forecasting, like what's my stress level going to be, or how long is someone going to be with the company or how many users are actually going to adopt this on a daily basis within the first month, all of these things, which we're lacking information about not allowing yourself. Well, how could I ever know that? And not accepting that as an answer is actually Uh really crucial to a good decision process. Certainly. And I think that that's just a great perspective in terms of you don't know it exactly, but knowing it's been more than one pounds and less than 20 pounds is way, way more narrow than it could be anything. Oh my gosh. Right. Like, I mean, and you know, this, I think I make the point in the book that this is part of the reason why we want to communicate with precision. So, you know, I think I I make the point that if I, if I say two plus two is a small number, I'm technically correct, but it's going to be harder for you to tell me things that might help correct my inaccuracies because I've, the target area is kind of broad that I've given you. And it's going to be hard for me to get better at math. Now I can, I'm going to get somewhat better because if I say two plus two is a very large number, you're going to be able to correct that. So it's not that I can't improve, but it's going to slow down my improvement that I'm not willing to give an exact answer like four. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's ways, obviously, if I'm not being precise that I can game it because I can say two plus two is somewhere between minus infinity and positive infinity. And okay, I'm technically right. But what is that value of the information there in terms of actually improving my decision-making? Because if you think about it, this is the reason why a crystal ball would be such an amazing decision tool is because all decision-making is forecasting of the future. When I make a choice, when I pick an option, What I'm saying is that I think that given whatever goals I have and what my values are and my resources are, that this option is going to be the most likely to create the type of future that I would like to unfold. And so I am being like a soothsayer in that sense, making a prediction about the future. And what we're trying to do is make those predictions higher quality. That's great. Well, well, tell me, Annie, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I think I'd like to just say like as another, just one really important decision tool when we're thinking about how are we actually getting a better view of the future? How do we actually become better fortune tellers, which is what we're trying to do. And I just want to give a real pitch for a decision tool that I think is somewhat counterintuitive, at least in popular culture, which is the power of negative thinking as opposed to the power of positive thinking. 
you know, so the power of positive thinking is like so incredibly popular in the literature, you know, from Napoleon Hill. We know about the power of positive thinking and it's very popular, which is you imagine a destination that you'd like to get to and then you imagine success along the way. And I think that it's a really bad decision tool. And I'm not saying that people should not imagine positive goals. Of course you should. But the whole key to unlocking decision-making is to imagine the obstacles, the ways in which you might fail along the way. Why? Because that is the only way you can avoid them. So the way that I kind of think about it is the difference between a paper map and ways. A paper map, you look at the destination you want to get to, and then it's clear roads. And I think about that as the positive power of positive thinking, right? Like, here are the clear roads, and now I'm just going to go along my merry way along onto those roads. Uh, but what does Waze do? Waze says, here's, here's the destination you want to get to. And by the way, there's a road closure over here, and there's like an accident on this one, and there's heavy traffic over here. And so I'm going to reroute you so that you can actually successfully get to your destination. And I think the problem with the positive thinking literature is that it sometimes is explicitly stated when you get into some sort of kookier versions of it, like the secret, but it's certainly implied in all of it that if you imagine failure, that will actually create failure. But what an app like Waze tells us is that if you imagine failure, it actually creates success because that is the only way that you can get out ahead of it. And the more that you can identify the obstacles that might lie in your path, the better off you're going to be because you're going to have a clearer view of the future and you're going to have a clearer view of the kinds of things that you might want to avoid, the kind of things that might get in your way. So one of the best decision tools that you can use is called a pre-mortem. And it was originally developed by Gary Klein. I have an adapted version of it in the book. Uh, And essentially what it asks you to do is to imagine a goal or a decision that you're making, which has an implied goal that it will work out. And imagine that it's however long you would, it would take for you to know whether you've reached your goal. So let's say that you have a goal to increase sales by 10% in the next year. And so you imagine it's a, a year and a day from now and you failed to reach that goal. And you ask yourself, okay, why did that happen? Why did I fail? And you divide it into two categories, matters of your own decision-making. What are, what are the decisions that I made that may have led to this failure and then matters of luck? And as I recommend with everything, you try to figure out how likely those things are, and then you can actually figure out what to do about it. You may say, maybe I should change my goal, but, or you may keep your goal and you say, well, here are a bunch of decisions that I might make that really would cause me to fail. So let me try to figure out how not to make those so that I don't, I don't actually engage in these kinds of behaviors, right? If I want to lose weight, I have to figure out a way because I know a point of failure is, you know, people bringing in cupcakes for their birthday. I need to figure out a way to not eat the cupcakes when that happens. I need to see that that's on the horizon and actually try to figure out how to avoid it. And then with matters of luck, you can think about, are there decisions that I can make that could reduce the probability of these bad things happening, right? I can't control the luck, but I might be able to reduce the probability of those things occurring. And even if I can't, maybe there, I can have a plan for it so that I'm not just running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And so I could figure out what those are. And maybe I can find a hedge, which is just like buying stocks and bonds at the same time. And if you don't actually think about how can I instantiate this idea of sort of plan positive, think negative into your decision process, you're gonna be constantly surprised by the world. You're gonna be using a paper map when everybody else is using really solid GPS.
And we know that people who use paper maps have a disadvantage, you know, in terms of getting to destinations on time than people who use ways. So don't be the person still using a paper map as it applies to your own decision-making. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My favorite quote from Feynman just has to do with him saying, if you can't explain it to a child, you don't actually know it yourself. And this is a paraphrase of, of the quote, obviously. But the, the reason why I like that so much is that it, it kind of really has to do this with this idea of like what makes for a really good tool. Because I have to be able to explain it to you. And I have to explain it in simple terms. And what I really love about that sort of second piece of not just do I need to be able to hand you the screwdriver so that you can use it, but if I can't explain it to you, I don't really understand the, how to use a screwdriver. And if I can't do that, I butt up against the limits of what I know in a way that when we talk about that universe of stuff we don't know that we really want to be exploring, it makes me go look in that universe. And then I get to expand my knowledge and everybody's better off for it because I tr explain to you how to use a screwdriver and then I understand screwdrivers much better for having had to go through that process. And that's why I love that Feynman quote so much. And you might think, I already know how to screw a nail, it's fine. Or, <laughs> you know, screw a screw. But sure enough, you say, you may have better experiences in terms of stripping them less often, getting them straight the first time, not having to redo stuff. Right. When people are having success doing something and they don't start thinking about what are the limits of my knowledge and what are the, what are the limitations of the way that I'm thinking about this and, and my perspectives on the world, what happens is that they get disrupted from without and you'd rather be disrupted from within. So you can look at like an IBM in the 1980s, uh, you know, versus a Microsoft or Apple. And, you know, this is a big danger when you're doing things pretty well and your models of the world are pretty good. But, you know, just as we talked about with things that are subjective, your model can be pretty good and it can be working, but that doesn't mean that you have the objective truth, right? Like you want to be exploring different ways that people could be looking at the problem and always seeking new knowledge and always sort of testing your ideas to see if there isn't a better way and also sort of back to the idea of negative thinking. And that causes you to have to sort of explore the limits of your own knowledge and your own ideas in a way that's actually going to help you to improve them and, and disrupt your own ideas instead of allowing someone else to come in and disrupt you, which is something that we're all trying to avoid. And how about a favorite book? I'm just going to answer it by recent, right? So I've got, I'm going to give you uh, two favorite books right now and then two that are, you should be looking out for the, on the horizon. The, my two favorite books right now are uh, Maria Konnikova, which is the biggest bluff, which is, is amazing. It's like a, it's like a marriage of memoir an exploration of the influence of luck in your life. So Maria decided she wanted to explore luck because she had some just sort of stuff happen to her. She had like her husband lost her job. She got sick. I think her, one of her grandparents died like all sort of all at once. And she's like, whoa. And she wanted to explore it. So she decided she was going to learn how to play poker from being a total novice. She actually ended up doing really well. She won a huge poker tournament. And it's just a really wonderful book. It's really beautifully written. And it's a great exploration of, of just sort of the influence of luck in your life. The other book that I really, I'm really recommending right now is The Psychology of Money, just by Morgan Housel. He's so good with just kind of like taking really complex concepts and making them very understandable through really, really fun narrative. 
And he's really just talking about like, what are the different ways that we think about money? Like what is money sort of as an object that we can sort of explore and understand like what is its purpose in our life and how do we think about it and what, what, what should we do about it and do with it? And it's, it's just a really fun book. It's real. I really think that everybody should be reading that book in terms of books on the horizon to have to be on the lookout for Katie Milkman, who's a professor at Wharton has a book coming out in the spring called how to change, which is incredible on just, if you want to create better habits in your life, just understanding when to have it, when does habit change occur? Why, what are the ways that you can sort of make that happen for yourself? It's, it's a really wonderful book. It's really fun. Uh, and then noise is going to be coming out soon from Kahneman, the Cass Sunstein and Olivier Sibony. And I'm really excited about that as like a contrast to thinking fast and slow, which is more about cognitive bias. And this is just more about sort of noisiness in the system. And it's a really good book. So I just, those are two for the horizon. And even narrowing it down, I gave you four. So that was great. Thank you. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. I would like people to practice when soliciting opinions or feedback from somebody else to try to not offer their own opinion first and see what happens. So there's this really big problem. Like when we were talking in the meeting sense about, you know, we all think that the goal of a meeting is to agree. That's true. One-on-one as well. It feels really good to agree with people that you're talking to. That's why we end up in echo chambers. So your opinions are contagious. So if I want to know what you think about like Perry Mason, which is on HBO, if I really want to know what you think, I should just say, what do you think about Perry Mason? But what we do is we say, oh, I watched Perry Mason. I thought it was really cool and interesting. And I think it was really fun to see his journey from detective to lawyer. And I liked that he was a flawed character as opposed to the Raymond Burr version. What do you think? And, you know, that's obviously something simple about a TV show that probably isn't very impactful. But think about that in terms of when you're really trying to get somebody's help is I'm not actually going to get your true perspective. And when we talk about surfacing the dispersion of opinion, how am I supposed to surface the dispersion of opinion if I offer you mine first? So I really challenge people to start trying to implement that into their own life. And I think they'll find that it really changes the, the communication and how much you sort of get to what people really believe that can really spur these interesting conversations. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Annie, I wish you lots of luck with your book, How to Decide, and all your decision adventures. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm so happy that we got to talk again. I really love Annie's phrase, dispersion of opinion. It feels so, I guess, scientific, factual, non-intimidating, not scary, not spooky in the least. Like, hey, we're looking for a dispersion of opinion. Not looking for a disagreement, not looking for a fight, not looking for a showdown. We're collecting a dispersion of opinion in an order to optimally select the best option. So I think that's that's a really great phrase. I'm going to be tucking that away and using it. Hope you dug that and more. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP614. And if you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Kurt Steinhorst. He's got some pro tips on optimally managing your attention. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.